Okay, I'm going to read for us this morning um, the passage that James is going to be uh, preaching from, and then um, we're going to pray for James, and he's going to come up and speak. So why don't you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we're going to read 12 to 26. So that is 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 to 26. It says this. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member... Where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be the weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less, and on those parts of the body that we think less honourable, we bestow the greater honour. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty which are more presentable parts, do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honour to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honoured, all rejoice together. Hey James, why don't you come up? We're going to pray and then leave you to it. Lord, we're thankful For James, we're thankful that he's had some time away with the family these last couple of weeks, and we're thankful to have him back and here with us this morning, bringing your word. Lord, we recognize that it is your Holy Spirit that equips and anoints him to bring your word in power this morning. So we ask that you would come by your spirit, anoint James to bring your word, prepare our hearts to receive from you, and be glorified in the midst of your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This morning, we're thinking about a church that serves, so I'm going to start here. Imagine if you were to ask someone who is connected with BRBC, knows BRBC, maybe they live in the village or used to come to BRBC, but because of work had to move away from BRBC. Imagine you ask them and you ask them this question, what is it that characterizes those people? I mean, think about it. If you ask them the question, what is it... That makes BRBC BRBC? What is it that makes those people unique? If you could summarize them, talk about some of the key things that sets that church apart. What are those people all about? What would you think they would say? Now, all of our, our hopes in here that they would say something that relates to what the church is supposed to do, as the Bible tells us, right? I mean, we would hope they would say, 
well, those people, they're really quite generous, aren't they? Or, or, or those people, they, they really, really love the community around them. And the community looks different because they are there. Or, or you'd hope they'd say something like, well, those people, they are characterized by an exuberant love for their Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. What do you think they might say? Now, there's one thing that I do know that people say about us, amongst many others, but there is one thing, a good things. I heard someone laugh, they're like, well, what do they say? There's, there's, one, there's one thing that just seems to come back again and again and again, and I think it's really quite special. You know what people say? They say, that is a church filled with people who know how to serve. Those people are great at serving the needs of one another. They are great at meeting the needs of the community around them. There are people who really know how to support people, especially when they're going through difficult times in their lives. Now, I understand you might be sitting there thinking to yourself, well, there's a lot to grow in that area. Of course, we want to keep growing in that. But that is something that just seems to come back again and again and again as something that characterizes, amongst many other things, but it's something that characterizes our church family as we care about serving one another. Now, I have a fear when it comes to serving one another. And here's my fear, I'll be candid with you. That we would begin to lose sight of the joy, the responsibility, and the privilege that we have to serve the people around us. That's my fear. Okay, James, well, why do you have that fear then? Here's why I have that fear. Because the last 18 months... We have lived a disconnected church life. I think about this. Like the rest of the world around us. Think about it. We have gone through the global trauma of a pandemic. Our lives have been disrupted. We've been dislocated from everything that we knew for so long. Life has been disrupted. And so my fear is that after 18 months, we begin to lose sight of how great it is to be able to serve. We lose sight of the privilege. We lose sight of the joy. Because those opportunities just haven't been there. Uh, Let let me show you what I mean. Imagine you are somebody who goes to the gym quite quite regularly. I don't know much about gyms. I've been there twice in my life. I can't do it. I just laugh watching the guys screaming and swearing at themselves in the mirror. I I can't do it. I just laugh. But ask somebody who goes to the gym, right? And you say to them, right, if if you didn't lift any weights for 18 months, what would you expect to happen to all of the hard work you've done in pumping those muscles up? What what are they going to say? Well, those muscles are going to weaken, aren't they? They're going to deteriorate. There's going to be some kind of atrophy. All of that hard work is going to be lost. Or maybe you ask someone who's a gardener, and they've got a beautiful flower bed in their garden, right? And they've been working on it. I say there's a beautiful buddleia in there covered in butterflies. There's a rose. All some marigolds. Imagine they don't touch that flower bed for 18 months. You ask them that question. What are they going to say? There's going to be nettles in there. There's going to be thistles, brambles, grass seeds. It's going to be a mess. I'm going to lose all of my hard work of where I got that flower bed to be. Now, as true as that is in so many areas of life, it is so true when it comes to service. If we've had 18 months where we have not been exercising our service muscles, where we've not been tending to the the wonderful, beautiful, diverse flower bed of church life, what's going to happen? It's going to atrophy. It's going to deteriorate. 
We're going to weaken in our passion to serve one another. So my fear is that we could lose sight of the joy, the responsibility, and the privilege. We could lose sight of the beauty of being a church that serves. So I want this morning to be something of a reinvigoration, a realigning, or maybe even just a wake-up to this beautiful truth that has characterized BRBC, but it is oh-so-biblical for us to continue on to be a church that does this well. So, so what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, some of you have got a basic idea of how this book pans out, but 1 Corinthians is a letter written by a famous fella called Paul. Now, if you don't know much about him, he used to be someone who murdered Christians, but he's now someone who wants to make Christians. Somebody who used to crush churches, but now he plants churches. And what we have in the New Testament are 13 of Paul's letters to these young, fledgling churches. 1 Corinthians is one of those letters. Now, if you ever sat down and read through 1 Corinthians, you would find out that this church has got a lot of issues. It's very messy. Because the whole letter, Paul just seems to be putting out fires and redirecting their messy thinking, their messy way of life. Because he's so desperate to see them flourish. He wants to see them doing well. Now, About three quarters of the way through, we get to this whole chunk where Paul talks about their gifts. He wants to show them that each of them have been uniquely gifted. You hear that? Each of them has been uniquely equipped by the Holy Spirit to selflessly serve the church community around them and the people in their lives. Now to show them this, Paul does in true wonderful Paul style. He makes it really simple and he gives them an image, a picture of a human body. And he says, look, you see how a normal human body has so many different bits and pieces to it? And it's all connected to make one whole. That's you, church. You are made up of many different diverse parts, but united together with Jesus as your head. That's what church life is supposed to look like. And he uses this as the grounds to show them, here's how you're gifted, but here is how you need to serve. So let's think about that this morning, shall we? Uh, Let's explore that. Let's ask some of those questions. Well, Well, how are we supposed to serve one another? I mean, what kind of mentality are we supposed to have as we engage in church life? How should we be using the unique ways that we have been created to beautifully and sacrificially serve people around us? What is our service supposed to look like? And maybe a better question here is to say, what should be our heart, our thinking, our disposition as we go ahead and engage in church life? Because one thing it cannot be is sitting on the sidelines. Or walking away in isolation and disengaging. But really, what is this supposed to look like? And I want to do four simple stepping stones for us this morning. Firstly, we want to have a look at our collective identity. So look at the the idea of who we are as a church. How can Paul use this imagery of a body? So who we are. Then I want to look at the wonder. I'll call it the wonder, but really it's kind of that that beautiful paradox of the body. We're, We're one, but we're many. What is it that makes that so beautiful? Let's look at that. Then let's have a look at the wrong thinking third. We're going to look at the wrong thinking. So Paul devotes so much time to to realigning their wrong thinking. So here's what you need to get right. And then by virtue of understanding all of that, we'll then understand number four, what the right thinking is. 
and then we'll land it in our lives. Does that sound okay, everyone? Should we jump into the first one? Now, as we go through this, though, think about your own engagement in church life. Think about your own ways you have been uniquely gifted and how you can serve. Think about the heart and the disposition you carry as you engage in church life. So let's look at the first one, who we are. Verse 12 and verse 13 in chapter 12. Look at this. Great words. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though the many, are one body, so it is with Christ. I'm going to read that verse again. That is fundamental to understanding everything he goes on to say from here. Verse 12 again. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all of the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews, Greeks, slaves, free, and were all made to drink of one spirit. Now very often in the Bible we'll find God's people described like that. We're many, but we are one. Think about John 15. We are the branches, and Jesus is the vine. Many into the one. Uh, Ephesians speaks about us being a temple, and we're the blocks or the bricks being built together. The many and the one. So right here, we have a similar image to describe God's people. We're a body, we're the many, and we are the one. But crucial to see right here is that we are united, we are interconnected, but who are we all connected in and who are we connected to? Connected to Jesus. All right, then, that makes me want to ask a question. How is it that Paul can use this imagery? I mean, how can he use this picture and call us a part of Christ and part of a body? Well, the answer is this, so follow me. The reason Paul can say this is because we are united to Jesus. Now, now if you're new to church this morning, especially if you're asking big questions about what it even means to be a Christian, and you're exploring, you're interested, here's something I'm going to give you here, and I want you to hold on to this. If you want to understand, understand what it means to be a Christian, the most simple way you can understand the Christian life is in these words, to be a Christian is to be united to Jesus. Almost 200 times across the New Testament, you find this phrase crop up, in Christ, in Him, in Jesus, in Christ. Now you're asking another question. Oh, I, I like that. United in Jesus. How am I supposed to understand that? How is anybody united to Jesus? Okay, let's make this really simple. Here is how the Christian message goes. Our world is broken and in need. It is dark, it is messy, it is sinful. But you'll also notice, with a little bit of reflection, that the people in the world are broken too. We're hurting. We suffer. We hurt others. We are full of sin and suffering. We know that. The same problem that is in the world out there runs through us too. It's called sin. Now here's the wonderful thing about the Christian message is that that God didn't say to us, well, you people have messed up so badly, I'm going to leave you to figure it out on your own. No, instead, God sets this plan in motion to send a savior. And Jesus Christ, at the appointed time, steps into our broken and messy world in order to seek and to save the lost. Now, what happens in the life of Jesus is he lives perfectly, righteous, in a way that we could never live. You see what's going on with Jesus is he's living the life that we could never live. So yes, he's an example to us, but also he's doing what we could never do. Now at the end of this perfect life, you know that Jesus goes to the cross. 
Now, we as Christians believe that it's not just some tragic miscarriage of justice going on. It's the Son of God laying himself down for us. On the cross, Jesus pays for our sin. He is our substitute. He is our savior. He is our perfect sacrifice. And he dies our death for us. And at the end of this, on the cross, he cries out, he breathes his last, it is finished. But the story doesn't finish there. We know that. Keep following me. Three days later, Jesus rises from the dead. He is alive, victorious over death and the grave. Now, here's how the Christian message goes. is that you come to Jesus and know him as your Lord and Savior through faith. Follow me. If you don't yet consider yourself a Christian, you need to hear this. The very thing that sets Christianity apart in this world is that we say... You are acceptable and made righteous in God's sight, not on the grounds of what you do, but by what Jesus has done for you. You see, most of the worldviews in our world will say, you can be made right in God's sight if you get your act together. If you behave yourself, if you are moral and make good decisions, then God will love you. That's how all religions go. But what makes Christianity unique, it says we can't get it right, but Jesus has done it for us. So that means when we come to Jesus, we do so not on the basis of what we do because we can't, but on the basis of what he's done for us, his life, his death, and his resurrection. Now keep following me. If we are saved by faith through grace, that's why we say it's a gift, right? If we are saved like that, then when we come to know Jesus, we are united with him. Follow me. When we come to know Jesus, his death becomes our death, and his life becomes our life. Let me explain that. When his death becomes our death, that means that all that we are, Jesus takes upon himself. Our sin, our mistakes, our guilt, and our shame, our messy track records, past, present, and future, he takes it all upon himself, but in return, it gets better. He gives us all that he has earned, every blessing that is his. He even lets us share on the wonderful, loving relationship he has with his heavenly Father, which is why we can pray, Our Father. So when we're in Jesus, he, he justi- we are justified in God's sight. We are made righteous. We are holy and being made holy. We are adopted into God's family. Do you see? United in Jesus. His death is death, and his life and resurrection is our resurrection. So in order to understand what it means to be a Christian, the best way you can understand, most simply, is that we are united to Jesus. So if you do Jesus this morning, please see that, that you come to know Jesus, not by what you do, by what he's done. And if you already consider yourself a Christian, which I'm guessing is most of you in this room, please be reminded of the fact that the very core of your Christian faith is a, is a vibrant, living relationship. Okay? I think very often we, we make this very analytical, don't we? It's not to say there's not a transaction that goes on on the cross. There is. But that the center point of our life is a living, vital, and vibrant union with Jesus. Now I know, that took a while, but that's why Paul can say, you are one body with Jesus. You are united. That's why he can use this imagery and use this picture for the Corinthians. That's why this has so much power. Because to be a Christian is to be united and in his body. Now let's keep moving, shall we? Because we've looked at who we are. That's our collective identity. Let's have a look at the wonder. What's the wonder? Look at verse 14. We love this. 
For one body does not consist of one member, but the many. Here's something, the paradox of what it means to be a part of a church. We are one, but we are many. We are united, but we are wildly and radically diverse. That's what makes us beautiful. I mean, I mean think about across the, the, the world. How many places do you find a group of people who are this diverse? Right? Think about all the other groups and collections of people. How often do you find people with, with this kind of this span of generations? This span of interests, of pains, of backgrounds, of, of languages, of races, tribes, ethnicities, you name it. Where do you find a more diverse group than this? It's incredible. But Paul is saying, even with that diversity, you are all one. So here's what's true of us. These two things must be completely true of us this morning. We are united in Jesus. I think very often churches get this wrong, or, or we, we don't quite see the gravity of this. We might use the language of like, well, let's do these things, uh, you know, let's have these events, and maybe at the end of all of this, we might be united as a church. No. If you belong to Jesus, and if we are a church family, we are united. It's not about becoming united, we are. Our union in Jesus is a constant cosmic reality for us this morning. It is who we are. So, so when we think about church unity, it's not about let's try and be united. It's that we are. The question is, are we going to exhibit that kind of unity? That's often why church bits are so painful. Yeah, I know people say things that you wish they didn't say. And, you know, grown-ups end up acting like 13-year-olds on a playground. <laughs> it's silly and it hurts. But what's most painful about a church split is a fracture of that cosmic and constant unity as a church family. So we are united. But we are also diverse. Now, what kind of diversity is Paul pointing to right here? Well, it's a diversity of gifts. It's a diversity of how we have been uniquely created and how we have been uniquely equipped by the Holy Spirit to serve one another selflessly, to serve people sacrificially in our lives. So you see what this means, and Paul's going to say this, is that every single one of us if we are a follower of Jesus, all of us have been given at least one unique gift by the Holy Spirit to serve one another in our church family. Now, this is at the point where a lot of people say, look, I understand other people have gifts. I know, I've seen them serve. They're incredible, but not me. They do, and I'm great with that. So I'm just going to stay on the sidelines. I don't have a gift. Well, you, you can't get away with that. No, you do. A couple of Christmases ago, um, we had a mix-up with a secret center. Because we, we have about 15 to 18 adults in our family. Then throw in the kids. Christmas was getting expensive. I mean, you need to take another mortgage just to get through Christmas or save up for years. So the best way to do this is just put everyone's name into a hat. We'll pick out the names, and then you'll only have to buy one really nice present. And it can be pinpoint for that person, and it's going to be great. So that's what we were going to do. So two months in advance, the names were then divvied out. But there was a mistake made. Someone's name went in twice, and someone's name didn't go in. So that meant on Christmas Day, someone was sitting there with two presents on their lap, really good ones, and I had an aunt who had nothing. Now, if, that, if I was that aunt, I would have sulked for the rest of the afternoon. But she didn't. She was really gracious. She was really kind about it, and she was cool. And the person with two presents felt guilty, and the person who had done the, done the, the names hasn't quite got over it. They haven't forgiven themselves to this day. They might do. 
But think about how often do we find ourselves sitting there on the sofa like my aunt. Well, everyone else has got a gift. Someone's even got more than one. But just not me. Well, Paul's going to say no. You've been uniquely gifted by the Holy Spirit to selflessly and sacrificially engage in the life of your church and the broken world around you to serve one another, to meet the needs, to seek the good, to advantage one another in Jesus' name, propelling one another into the life and love of Christ more and more. You have a role to play. The wonder of the church is that we are one, united, but we are diverse, more diverse than we often realize. Now let's look at this next one here. Let's look at the wrong thinking, because have a look over this text here, from verse 15 all the way down to verse 26. Paul is realigning the Corinthians to understand how they should be serving in the life of their church, okay? And what he does right here is he realigns two distinct wrong ways of thinking. The first one is verse 15 to verse 20. Look right there. It seems to be a mentality that says, you don't need me. And then verse 21 down to verse 26 is a mentality that says, I don't need you. So let's look at the first one. You don't need me. Let me reread verse 15 to verse 20. For if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if an ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts and yet one body. Now, you can get a sense for that. This is the kind of person who exists in church life and says, I'm going to stay on the sidelines because you don't need me. What's going on here is a sense of uselessness. Now, I guess that that is often the predominant reason why people don't engage in church life. Because we feel useless. Now, there's many reasons why we come to that conclusion, right? There's loads of ways. Sometimes Sometimes it's because we live in a culture of comparison. Social media loves this. Look at the lives of someone else. See their beautiful, perfect highlight reels. Then take a good look in the mirror at your own life. And what you'll realize is you're rubbish compared to them. And what does that then do to us? This culture, the comparison trap is awful. It makes us feel like we have to sit on the sidelines. It turns us into nobodies. It makes us feel like we've got nothing to contribute to the life of whatever community we are a part of, especially a church community. Comparison never ends well. I think it was Eleanor Roosevelt said, comparison is the thief of joy. I agree, and I'll add to that. Comparison is the thief of service. Look around. How many times have we found ourselves in church looking at someone else who's got those gifts right? I wish I could do that. I wish I was good at that. I wish I had that. And what does that comparison do? You take a step back. You take a step back. You retreat. You isolate. You stay on the sidelines. I'm useless. Another way we can get to that is because the world around us has told us we are good for nothing. A lot of us have that, right? When we look across our lives and there's been some loud voices from the world around us, you are not worth it. You are, you are useless. Now, now, often that happens in our childhoods. 
Often before the concrete of our identity has set. And we've been told, this is who you are. And so we engage in life on the sidelines. Never engaging with others. Completely okay with being isolated. I'm going to just keep going, right? There's loads of reasons why we would feel useless. But Paul is saying, no. If you're in the body, if we are one in Christ and diverse, then we all have a distinct role to play. Nobody gets out of this. So whoever you are, if you are that, if you identify with this first wrong thinking that says, you don't really need me. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. If you are in Jesus, then you, my friend, hear this, have been uniquely gifted by the Holy Spirit to contribute to the life of this church family. To selflessly give of your time, your energy, your gifts, and your service in order that the people around you would flourish. That's the first wrong thinking. Here's the second wrong way of thinking. And it's a kind of thinking that says, you don't need me. Look at this, verse 21 to 26. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head uh, to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Look at this in verse 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So this is the thing that says, I don't need you. I don't need a church. So if that was uselessness, This would be self-sufficiency. This is someone who says, I don't need you guys. I think I can do this on my own. Now, Now, there's many reasons why someone might come to this conclusion. Maybe it's a real wrestle with pride. You know, I think I've got life figured out. And when I look around at everyone else, they just don't seem to be as good as me. I think I can, I've, I've got the intellectual prowess. I think I've got the emotional stability. I'm quite an analytical thinker and no one else seems to be. Everybody else seems to be really fragile. I think I've got this. I think I can manage just fine without all of those messy and chaotic people. I'm out of here. But then sometimes we come to this conclusion in a different way though. Sometimes it's because we've been hurt by a church. I mean, I've met plenty of people who stand on the sidelines and say, yeah, I just struggling to connect. I've had some bad experiences. I've been hurt before. So I think I'd quite like to do this on my own. Thank you. Or maybe we've come to this conclusion saying I don't need the church because we've switched off during lockdown. Now maybe for some of us we didn't engage for two or three months. I guarantee you that's going to hurt your spiritual life. Maybe you come to this I can do this on my own. I can, I, I can isolate myself from other people. I don't need that mess. Well, Paul would say to you, yes, you need the church and the church needs you. There is no space to say that you can get away with doing your Christian life following Jesus without your brothers and sisters in the Lord in the body around you. So Paul's aligning the wrong thinking, therefore. We've got to do one more thing. Let's look at the right thinking. So let's, let's deduce all of that. Everything we've looked at surely now shows us how we should be thinking about church life. Here's what I'm going to say. The right thinking is to understand that if we're a body, then we are an interdependent family. 
You see that? If we are a body, then we are an interdependent family. Being a body means there is no space for us to say, you don't need me, I'm going to stay on the sidelines. Being a part of the body means there is no space for you to say, I don't really need the church. We are interdependent, every single one of us, uh, sustained by the lifeline of grace through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's who we are. So that means we are an interdependent bunch of people who have been uniquely gifted and shaped by God in order to selflessly serve the people around us. That's who we are. Now, now if that's true, I think some other things now need to be true of us that need to characterize the way we serve, okay? If we're interdependent, if we are a body, therefore, number one, other people's flourishing needs to become our joy. See that? Other people's flourishing needs to become our joy. Now often, maybe it's because it's a year and a half of disconnected living means that we're dragging our heels when it comes to church. Do I really have to be involved with those people? Yes, you do. You belong to Jesus, so you have to. So, so that means when we engage in church life, we serve. But we're ready to take opportunities because it's about the flourishing of other people. Paul wants every single one of them to engage in church life and say, it's not about me, it's about them. Isn't that why we jump onto, onto teams on a Sunday morning and serve? Isn't that why people give of their gifts on a Sunday morning and play music for us? To help us as we worship? And, 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 and people on the desk, they serve. And every time they do serve, what is it? They are contributing to the spiritual flourishing of this church family. When people welcome well, with a handshake, a smile, a hug, a tea, a coffee, whatever. What are we doing? We're contributing to the flourishing of others. Serving in the children's ministries, serving in the midweek ministries. What about community groups? When you're attentive and aware to the needs of other people in your group and you are serving them, the people who live on your streets, your colleagues, or organically in church life throughout the week as we serve one another. What's going on? It's other people's flourishing. And that needs to be our joy. Isn't that why when we serve, we want to do it with excellence? We want to prepare to surround it with prayer. To really care about what we are doing because it is our joy to be used by the Lord to serve others. Okay, other people's flourishing. What it also means though is that when we serve, it's a win-win. We win and they win. They win because whoever we're serving is receiving the use of our gifts and they are being built up and encouraged in the Lord, okay? But it's a win because we get to the joy of knowing that we have been used by God to serve other people. It's a win-win. And, and then finally, as we serve, we are, we are creating a much, how am I going to word this? We are creating a beautiful community that doesn't really exist in the world around us. Think, think about our world. When it comes to serving one another, it doesn't really exist. Why is that? We live in a con consumer society. A consumer society approaches everything by saying, is this worth it for me? If I give you this, whether that's money or my time, it better be worth it. And if it's not worth it, then I'm out of here. The benefits have to outweigh the costs that I'm putting. That's how consumer works. But the church doesn't function like that because we are a body. 
We don't walk in the front door asking the question, what's in it for me? We walk in the front door asking, how can I serve? Who can I be? How can I be generous? How can I give of my gifts, my time, my energy, my prayer, all that I am? I'll give of my very self. How can I serve? You see, that's what makes us beautiful. We're so different to the selfishness of the world that says what's in it for me. We say, how can we serve? And that sets us apart. You see, the church is designed to be the body of Jesus. So we must be that beautiful song and symphony of self-giving. We must be that synergy of selflessness. And we will shine like stars in this broken world. Now here's what you might be thinking. All right, James, uh, I love those four things right there. Thank you very much. But that just feels a little bit too hard for me. I mean, how can I serve? Often I feel lazy. (laughs) Struggle to get out of bed on a Sunday morning and show up early and serve other people. I don't really have the enthusiasm, it seems like, I'm supposed to have, according to Paul. Do I really have that kind of joy and a sense of privilege? No. In fact, I struggle. It's hard to find the strength to prepare. It's hard to find the time and the discipline to pray into and surround what I'm doing with prayer and to care. James, where can I find the strength to live into this? Answer, come back to Jesus with me. What we have in Jesus, we have a Lord, we have a Savior, but we have a serving Lord and Savior. Jesus is the greatest of all servants. And we belong to him because he served us. Jesus himself said it. it. He came into the world not to be served, but to serve. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that Jesus took on the form of a servant, even death upon a cross. So we belong to him because we have been served by him. Think about John 13 as Jesus, on the night before, he's crucified with his friends, the disciples, and he washes their feet. Peter protests and he says, no, Peter, I have to wash you, otherwise you're going to have no share with me. And then he goes on to say, right, guys, because I've served you, because I've washed your feet, you've got to do the same for others. What's what's Jesus effectively saying? You are going to find the strength, the idea, the impetus, the motivation, everything that you need to serve one another when you see that I have served you. That's so much of how the Christian life works. We do for others what we see God has done for us in Christ. You know, we, we're able to find the strength to forgive others when it's hard, when we see that God has forgiven us in Jesus. Generosity is hard, but then we realize how generous our God has been to us, so it provokes us to be generous too. When we see that God has loved us and he has loved his enemies in us, It helps us to love other people. Where do we find the strength for service? When we catch a glimpse of our Savior who has served us. That's how we know him. So we need to be a church family that shines in this world as a church that serves well. Like I say, my fear is that we lose sight of the joy of service. We lose sight of the privilege and the responsibility of sacrificially, selflessly, giving of ourselves so that others may flourish. So maybe this morning we can catch sight of that joy, hitting the new year and new school year and everything that the Lord has for us over the next little while. We do so as a church that serves.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your word. Thank you for the letter of 1 Corinthians and for Paul's wonderful imagery in it. Father, would you help us to see that we as a church family are in the body of Jesus. So that means we are united. Whether it feels like it or not, we are. And we live into it. And Father, we thank you that we are diversely gifted, shaped by your Holy Spirit in order to serve the people around us. Father, we pray that you would help us after 18 months of disconnected, disrupted living to be reminded of the fact, to catch sight of the beauty that we are a church that serves Help us, strengthen us, and again in Jesus. And we're praying in his name. Amen.